Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Day Sniper Podcast. I am Kalen Wojcik, one of your hosts, and today I am sitting down with Mr. Dan Newberry from Western Virginia. Not West Virginia, but Western Virginia. Mr. Newberry is well known in the precision shooting space on the handloading side for his work and publications on the optimal charge weight load development method, and that's what we're going to talk about during this episode, some of Dan's thoughts of how he came up with this method. It's a method that I use uh, regularly, and it's very successful for me, and I hope that you guys can learn something from the podcast episode. Dan Newberry also operates a shooting school in Virginia called Bang Steel, and you can find him at bangsteel.com, and you can also Google optimal charge weight reloading, and you're going to find a slew of information on Dan and his reloading methods. With that being said, guys, also make sure that you check out moderndaysniper.com over at the events tab and see what classes we have coming your way in 2023. We have a really robust training schedule this year, and I'm pretty sure that you're going to be able to find something in your neck of the woods where we're coming to teach. So with that being said, make sure that you guys enjoy the episode and you know the drill. Keep your face on the gun. Dan, for the listeners out there... um, your name's Dan Newberry. Okay. Um, right. so Dan, give us a back, some background on, on where you're from and, um, what, uh, what you have been, uh, been known for establishing in our shooting community. Well, I'm in uh, Virginia, the Southwestern part, the same part of the state <clears throat> and the, uh, OCW hand loading method is something I came up with, uh, I think around 2001, 2002, and that's when I started fooling with centerfire rifles um, and hand-loading. What caused me to want to come up with a system that that worked to find a load that might work in multiple rifles, and we do now know that such loads exist, what caused me to think of that was I was shooting a 308 and I I can uh, I would shoot federal gold medal match. <clears throat> and it's like this stuff shoots great. Then I got another 308 and the same exact <clears throat> lot number of uh, gold medal match shots super great in it. And I thought, well, how do they do this? Um how is it these big ammo makers come up with a load that uh and and of course now i mean if you've got a 308 that won't shoot gold medal match well you got a rifle problem either that or a shooter problem right exactly i'm not saying you can't beat it with with some of the stuff that eric cortina talks about um you, you know with a hand load but uh the gold medal meets i would say it exceeds the needs of your average American rifleman, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just really thought about it and I got outside of the box and I thought about, because I went through the gamut of, you know, let's, let's try 42.1 grains. Let's try 42.2 grains. I realized that's not enough of a difference to, you know, do anything. And I thought, okay, what am I, I mean, I, realized that I wasn't doing something right, even though I was doing it like I had been taught by others. Something just wasn't making sense. A load that would work good on one day, <clears throat> you go back the next day or the next week, and, and it's just, uh, 
not working at all or not working nearly as well as it did before. There is a randomness, and you know this, <clears throat> a randomness to group size. Um, <clears throat> even if you have the most perfect load that ever existed and then the most perfect rifle and, and you are in perfect form, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's still going to be, the, the groups are going to open and close and you want to be the weakest link. If you're not the weakest link in the system, then you're never going to get better than what that weak link is, right? Right. So I realized that as I shoot these groups, my barrel's getting hotter toward the end of the session. I'm trying new new recipes or new powder charges. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'm getting harder and conditions outside are changing, light conditions, uh, affect group size. I, I mean, affect how you aim and the perception you're looking at through the scope. Uh, you know, we tell people when, when you're looking at a target in the scope, you're not looking at the target. You're looking at an image on a piece of glass. Mm-hmm. And um, the, um, <clears throat> you know, light effect can, can alter that slightly. So I thought, all right, I'm going to take five different charge weights of powder and I'm going to shoot the first one. We'll just keep it simple and say 41.0 grains, um, whatever power, 4064 Vargas and a 308 and 168, 175 grain bullet. I'm going to shoot 41 grains at target spot number one and then I'm going to pause for 15, 20 seconds early on into the test and shoot 41.3 grains at target spot number two and then 41.6 grains. I'm jumping up in three tenths of a grain at target spot three, 41.9 at target spot four, and 42.2 at target spot five. At this point, I've got one shot on each target dot on the same target board. And I go back to the bottom and do it again. You got to do bottom to top, bottom to top, bottom to top. Some folks have tweaked it a little bit and they they weave their way back down. That's, in my opinion, not the best way to do it because you end up with fewer shots between those top groups on the way back down than you. And, and by the time you get to your your starting charge weight again, in this example, forty one grains. You got a lot of shots between the 41, first shot of 41 grains and the second shot of 41 grains. Right. So you try to try to spread it out evenly. So bottom to top, bottom to top, bottom to top three times. You can do it four times. Um, you can try six graduations um, if you want to. If you shoot too much, too many shots, you know, it, it may, um, it depends on the barrel. If you've got a really good sure. barrel, you can shoot all you want. But, then when you get to the end, let's say you got three shots of each charge weight on its own target dot, and they've been fired round robin in this manner. <clears throat> um, then you look at what you have. Over time, um, and this could be a little controversial, but I'm telling you, if, you, if any shooter who has hand-loaded through the years and kept good data, if you go back and look, you're going to see this pattern. I wondered if it would repeat even with something as large as the 50 Browning. It does. Uh-huh. Um, I finally got, I don't handle it for 50. We own one, but I don't 
I don't handload for it, but I finally got a handloading client that was developing a load for 50 and the pattern repeated. And the pattern I'm going to talk about is this 3% rule. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a rule. Maybe it is a rule. I, it, I don't see it violated. Maybe someone else will, but those groups open and close at 3% intervals on the powder charge. So if you're in the 40 to 42 grain area, <clears throat> 308, Creedmoor, uh, whatever, in that powder charge range, <clears throat> you see that your tight group, and I call it the optimal charge weight, OCW, um, your tight group, will, if, you, if you go beyond that powder charge, it will open up like the ebb and flow of the tides, and uh, it tightens up again. Three percent higher. So if you're shooting tight at forty-one point zero grains, add three percent. It's going to be about one point two grains. You're tight again at forty-two point two grains. There will be another node above that at forty-three point four grains. It just does it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, um, the best thing what I ask people to do, we we have engineers who are clients, and um, in fact, I've talked to Chris Long about this. Um, and he's up your way. I'm not exactly sure how close, but uh, he's, he's he uh, optimum barrel time. He probably heard yes. his work. Yes, and now that I know he's up in this uh, in this area, I'm 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 going to reach out to him and get him on the on the show as well because I think uh, you know the more information that we share with with people, the the better off everything is because I think. Um, um, not to not to digress or divulge from from your explanation. I think that, um, in large part, a lot of the foundational and like fundamental practices of understanding how to develop uh, a charge weight have kind of gotten like lost to the wayside, if you will. Um, just because people are like, "Hey, I'll just pick that charge. That's what everybody else says works, and it might yeah. work." However, you you just you really do have to make sure it's going to work in your rifle. But there, are, there is also something to what your what your statement is. It's like, hey, if this charge weight doesn't work with this bullet weight in your rifle, you might have a rifle problem. You know, you might have a you might have an issue with it. So, I'm sorry. Please continue because I, I I want you to let everybody know what it is your me- your methodology is. Okay, <clears throat> and and yeah, you're right. I mean, if you know the good match ammo it doesn't have to be match ammo there's some you know, winchester's got a heck of a 270 <clears throat> uh, load recipe 130 grain uh, soft point uh, hunting bullet i mean every 270 i'm familiar with shoots daylights out with that but <clears throat> and it's it's the powder charge mm-hmm. so yeah even that 50 browning I noticed across the continuum as we shot through the charge weights that we were testing, that the groups opened and closed, opened and closed right at 3%. Now that means in between two 3% points, let's say we're back to the 41 to the 42.2 grain charge area, right between 41 grains and 42.2 grains, there's the, um, I called it the scatter node. And, um, Lynn Walden did an article on this system for guns and ammo. I don't know if it got printed yet, Um, but he was calling it the anti-node, and that's fine. Um, 
but that's your bad group. And when I interpret an optimal charge weight target test, I'd rather see the scatter group than the OCWs because I will look for the worst group on that continuum. And I said, that looks like the scatter node right there. And I will either add 1.5% to the powder charge of that scatter node or deduct 1.5%. Got it. And when I do, when I, when I do that, I expect to see tight groups on either side of it. And when you see that, when that, pattern falls into place and you, you, you see it there, then you know you're good. Right. Um, you know that that's going to be a really good charge. And that's the course adjustment, uh, C-O-A-R-S-E. And, and then there's a fine-tuning level. And that would be that would be your seating depth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I know people start with seating depth first and then find what they think is the best seating depth and then start messing with the powder charge. That doesn't make sense to me because your seating depth is your fine tune. To me, starting with the seating depth and just any random powder charge is like starting with a random set of carburetor jets in a, in a race engine mm-hmm. and swapping swapping pistons until you find something that runs good with those jets. That's right. backwards. So find your powder charge, because if you have a good powder charge, most seating depths are going to print pretty well. You know, uh, now obviously there are some seating depth sensitive bullets out there that I don't For like sure. to use. I don't like to fool with them because you get a different lot number and then you're back to square one. You're shooting, shooting up barrel life trying to make these, you know, seek and toe job bullets work right. And, uh, I just stick with something that's <clears throat> not so cantankerous. That's my opinion. But uh, so, yeah. Um, in a nutshell, that's the OCW system. Um, I had a statistician. It's reasonably well known in the field. It's named Denton Bramwell. <clears throat> Denton Bramwell said that because um, I saw him, I saw him say it on a forum. Sometimes I do a Google search and see. All right. Well, they saying about me this week, <laughs> and uh, I um, I saw him say that the OCW optimal charge weight load development system is the most statistically relevant load development system by far, and he did say by far. And here's a well-known statistician saying it's the most statistically relevant way to um, to develop a load because what you're doing. Um, if if you find that optimal charge weight and you got scatter nodes 1% above and 1% below that charge weight and that charge weight, it's, it's, it's basically acid tested if you think about it because you've mm-hmm. gone through all these other shots. You know, your, your barrel is getting more fouled and your barrel is heating up. But in spite of that, that thing shot a nice little clover leaf at that point. Now it's true you don't you don't go by group size alone. You want to look at point of impact shift. And then as you go through that optimal charge weight continuum, you will see the point of impact move. Um, you know, back and forth. And with a, a long hunting weight barrel, it moves a lot. Yeah, you it know, does. Shorter, yeah, shorter heavy barrels, not so much. <clears throat> but um, you know, when I'm interpreting a target for a client, I 
I can say, okay, let's <laughs> say it's a it's a Magnum um, hunting, you know, three hundred wind mag hunting weight, and I see uh, seventy two grains of powder, for instance, was printing here on the round robin test, but one of these shots moved about an inch high and right. Well, seventy two point five grains, the next increment up started collecting shots right in that same area so i know that the 72.0 grain charge that one shot that reached i will call it it moved it was trying to it was reaching toward that new point of impact mm-hmm. and um and i know that that was not a shooter induced flyer i'll have a client say well you know i had a flyer there you know it's a flyer yes but you didn't cause it that's a great point. I want to, if if I if I can pause you on that, because uh, Jaden was talking, and Jaden Quinlan from Hornady was talking about this um, in one of his podcast episodes, and he was just he was like he said to people, um, it, it was more uh, they were talking about shot to shot dispersion, uh, the actual uh, accuracy capability and precision capability of of rifles, and. Um, it's a you'd probably really enjoy it if you haven't listened to it already as well um it's a good episode on just statistics and uh sample sizes and and yeah. you know so uh, granted hornady's th- that's an ammunition company that can that can they have the the time the resources and the financial means to be able to um do 50 shot groups right <clears throat> whereas right. for us it's for us as you know um <laughs> but even you know as a professional shooter that's a little that's just way too i'm not doing that let's put it that way i'm just not doing that i'm not uh that's not i don't require that level of uh of of depth in my sample size to get what i want and get what I need. Um, but he was talking about a shooter throwing a shot and he would say, well, um, like that shot got tossed pretty bad and you got to ask the shooter, Oh, I threw that one. And it's like, well, did you really throw that one that bad? Or, or, or was it just a function of the dispersion of the rifle that you're shooting? Because you right. know, you know, like in order for you to toss a shot that bad, the 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 bag would have the rifle would have to fall off the bag practically <laughs> in the process of the yeah. shot. So, yeah, no, I mean that's a that's a good point to mention to 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 people that are listening is that just just realize that like you know what a bad shot feels like, you know what it feels like, right? So, and if it doesn't feel right, and you get a result on the paper, then don't be so convinced that it was you, especially when you're doing this kind of testing and you're trying to find your find an optimal charge weight. So it's it's I think that's an important point to mention. Sure, absolutely. And when you shoot the OCW test will kind of help you discern if that was a shooter induced flyer or if that's just where this load is is, is going to mm-hmm. uh, i mean you do get occasional bad bullets and such but um <clears throat> the um i mean i've had i've had a client say well you said use 62.7 grains why are you saying 62.7 when that was not a good group two shots touched and one of them was low and left mm-hmm. and i'll say yes but at 62.2 grains, there's no low and left shot in that area. Mm-hmm. They're not collecting there. And then 63 grains, five tenths higher, 
they're not going down there. So if the if the powder charge increment below that point and above that point is not putting shots in that stray area, right? Then I say I say that's a shooter induced flare right there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, so and normally, sure enough, they'll try the charge. I say to to try and uh, and things fall into place. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of us are perfect. We're going to pull shots. I mean, it happens. Um, but uh, but real, real, you know, being able to tell the difference between a shooter induced flyer and and something to do with the uh, load recipe uh, is going to be difficult to do unless you do shoot this OCW continuum. I prefer to shoot it round robin. That's that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Then you can kind of tell. Then you can kind of tell. You know, this was this was uh, uh, the reason this shot went. You know, high right is because when we stepped up a powder charge, they all go high right. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> and then so that one shot in that lower charge group, it acted like it had sixty two point seven grains in it it acted like that right it only had it had 62.2 but a slightly tighter case or just a slight pressure increase there it goes yeah and so that's why the yes and so what i've discovered is you know and through when i started it when i started on this um on this path you, your load method was, um, was one of the first ones that, that I discovered and I happened on it, um, just doing some research and I had been doing ladder tests prior to that. And as we all know, ladder tests, a traditional ladder test is not easy to conduct. It's very time consuming and it can be, you know, now with technology, with, we have like a shot marker system makes ladder tests, Mm -hmm. 600 yards, super, super easy to do, uh, provided that you, you know, set the, set the shot marker up properly and it's, and it's functioning the way it should. Um, but outside of that, I mean, it wasn't easy to do at 600 yards. Um, and, and we all know that the results are not very conclusive at something closer at like 300 yards. It's, it's even harder, especially if you have a really good shooting rifle. Um, yeah. so once I decided, once I discovered the OCW method that you had published, um, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to try this because it stays here. I can do this at a hundred yards. And once I started to utilize that test and it was, I won't, I won't lie. It was confusing at first because I had to program, I had to prime my mind for what I was looking, what I was looking at on the targets and to watch for the patterns that you're, that you're describing with point of impact. And one of the things that I try to communicate to people is that, is, is that we're not, like you said, we're not truly looking for group size. We're looking at a consistency in our point of impacts. And that 3% rule that you're talking about is, um, that's real. Like that, that is very, very real. And all so of you've the time, seen that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very, it's consistent. Um, and you know, I shoot, I don't shoot a whole lot of 300 wind mag. I haven't loaded for 300 wind mag in, in, in quite a few years, but I have done a lot of loading with short magnums. Uh, I shoot the seven Psalm quite a bit and, uh, the six, five PRC, um, and everything, you know, in between from there. And, and it just flat out works. It's very, very simple. Um, and, 
you know, it's, I think it's far more conclusive than a velocity node test. And I would love to, I would love to get your point of view on that because there are so many different methods out there to, to find a charge weight. But for the, for the guys that are listeners, what we're looking for with the optimal charge weight is the most pressure resilient charge weight. And, right. and I learned that from, from you and the communication that we're, that I'm trying to get to people to understand is that the pressure resiliency is what we're looking for. And that's where that federal gold medal match just shoots flat out shoots in every rifle. It's a, it's a pressure, it's a pressure, uh, value that works consistently regardless of the rifles, the, the rifles barrel length or barrel contour. And it's, it's crazy. It's crazy how well it works across all platforms. Yes, I think that's a good point you're making. Pressure resilient to pressure a window. You know, mm -hmm. if you had a pressure, right. a strain gauge or something, you know, not every shot you send is going to hit that exact to the single digit pressure number. Mm -hmm. They're going to vary. So you need to find the, the powder charge that's kind of in the middle of that. And then when it goes down a little, pressure goes down a little or up mm -hmm. a little based on whatever there's multiple it's, reasons that it, it's still in a group right in that same point of that consistent point of impact and so for you for the listeners out there what we're talking about is making sure that if we had a case <clears throat> that potentially had just a little bit more neck tension on the projectile if we had a case that's just a little bit bigger or smaller than the one before it with the same powder charge so we have a different volume in the case that yields a different pressure um, in the combustion process, those bullets are still going to group into that same consistent point of impact. Um, now, granted, you might have some additional extreme spread in your velocity, which at long range can potentially pose a problem. Um, but then again, it's all fallen into a, it's all fallen into a consistent point of impact so that we're not tossing flyers that are not shooter induced because if we're not in that same if we're not in that pressure window and we're kind of on the ragged edges on the upper uh, the upper or lower end of that pressure window you're going to throw flyers and they're not going to be because of you it's just simply exactly. because the rifle dynamics you, and the pressure you pattern. colored out the, the load colored outside the lines right there a little bit yeah <laughs> they colored outside the lines i like that yeah. so the you talk about you know velocity uh, trying to develop a load based on velocity, I, I did try that. You know, early on, I even naively said, "Well, this this gold medal match federal 308 load is is going 2650 feet per second in my rifle. Mm -hmm. So all I have to do is put enough 4064 Varget Reloader 15. All I have to do is find out what powder charge makes my bullets go that speed and, and I'm in the catbird seat and you're not, you don't fall out of the cell. Right. It doesn't work like that. So it, barrel time is everything. <clears throat> um, right. Chris Long has, has uh, really done a lot of research and study on this. Barrel time is everything. So and, talk to me about that. What, what do you educate people? What, what do you mean by barrel time? Explain that. From the time that primer is struck until the time the bullet, exits the muzzle you know it's uh, measured in microseconds i guess <clears throat> that, that's long field there he knows how to call that number <laughs> but i know that it has to be consistent mm -hmm. and just try, you know shooting a velocity test 
and also shooting across the chronograph until you find a tight window of velocity. And these guys do this all the time on these forums. Every time I turn around, uh, here's a picture of somebody's magnetospeed uh, display, and look at this, you know. And I just look at that like a wallet group because you're going to try that next week, and it'll probably be different. Right. <laughs> you know? right. But uh, take a um, take a drag race. You know, I, I like to watch different. Usually, like um, you know, gas or drag races and stuff, and and you know, um, stock drag race muscle cars. Um, a lot of times, the car that finished with the highest speed came in last. It came in second because the other one accelerated faster mm-hmm. and it got to the finish line, you know, at a, let's say it got to the finish line at 120 miles an hour, but it accelerated faster. The other one didn't. He was building speed in a different way and, and he might have finished at 122, 123, but he finished second. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you look at the barrel and, and bullets going down it, um, you know, just trying to find a velocity that you think is going to be the best um, won't work that way. <clears throat> the the barrel, the muzzle, and and this is maybe a good time to talk about the muzzle vibration. You know, Chris Long talks about the shock wave. Yep, and that's the acoustic shock wave that runs from the chamber to the muzzle, back and forth. Uh, I mean, at the speed of sound in steel, which is 18,000 feet per second, we're told. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's done made a trip to the muzzle and back before the bullet even gets its boots on. Right. And so Long, I think, very accurately, correctly points out that you do not want that shock wave at the muzzle uh, turning around to go the other way back to the chamber when your bullet gets there. That's, he's got a great white paper on that, that, um, I, it's, it's complex. Um, and my, my math skills do not allow me to, uh, to fully understand (laughs) the, all of the equations that he cites. And, um, I would love to be able to have the, the background in mathematics to do that. And, um, but I understand the concept, uh, in layman's terms of what's occurring. And I think that there is definitely, there's definitely something to that because, you know, that's when we're starting to talk about barrel tuners now and what people have discovered, I can do this. I can, I can fit, I can get this thing to fit by tuning the vibrational pattern of the barrel. Um, And that's, that's all we're doing with the tuner is we're tuning the vibrational pattern. Right. I, I, I saw the hot Eric Cortina's podcast with um, Chris Long, and they, they touched on this. They didn't dig very deep. There were a lot of subject matter covered in that show. Um, but Eric pointed out that the, you know, there's something to do with this uh, seating depth and barrel tuner. There's some mm-hmm. connection there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm like, yes, there is. And um, to me, you can. No, it, the nice thing about a barrel tuner is you don't have to fiddle with seating depth tests if you really want tight groups, you know, on paper at a hundred, you can you can work with that tuner and, and and make a factory load that you do not have the option of uh seating depth testing and mm-hmm. you can make it shoot better. Make it yeah. shoot better. The rimfire guys um, they use these religiously. Uh, those bench rest you know, twenty two. 
and they use these tuners. The and we go back to barrel time, and um, when the shot goes off and that acoustic wave starts running back and forth, the barrel, if you can imagine, a tuning fork. Well, mm-hmm. the very end of that barrel is is making a specific pattern, and it's different for every piece of steel. It's different for every barrel. And as a, you know, if it's hot outside, if it's cold outside, it, it may alter there too. I'm mm-hmm. not going to state that as a fact, but it, it, you know, I'm suggesting that it may be the case <clears throat> because you know the metallurgy, you know, the the molecules are closer together, further apart, depending on temperature. But um, the um, let's say that pattern, that muzzle whip, I'll call it the muzzle whip, is oscillating from one o'clock to seven o'clock in this mm-hmm. flattened figure eight a flattened figure eight like a the infinity symbol mm-hmm. and it's doing that on one barrel on another barrel it's a 10 o'clock to four o'clock thing you know another barrel which i wouldn't want is a nine o'clock to, to three o'clock thing it's going sideways you could still make that gun shoot though but what you want you don't want those bullets exiting the muzzle while the bullet while the muzzle is in a straightaway going from one extreme to the other because I've seen this. You get what I call it strafing. You know, it might it might be a good load, and it's a tight group. You know, maybe it's my gold medal match example. They're, they're kind of in a belt of Orion pattern there, but they're, they're sub MOA, but they're they're in a line. Mm-hmm. And when that when that muzzle reaches the one terminus or the other, it is static for just a tiniest period of time, of course, mm-hmm. and any, you know, you can have bullets that with a 20 foot per second extreme spread exiting at one extreme or the other of that muzzle whip, and they're still clustering because the, the, the barrel's not moving. The muzzle's not whipping, you know, at that point in that tiny, tiny window of time. And that's where you see your um, clover leaves. Right. Or, you, or even your bug holes. You see them there. And, um, and there's another seating depth. See, seating depth is going to is going to dictate when the bullet exits the muzzle, right? Mm-hmm. You tweak the seating depth a little bit until you get the bullet to exit the muzzle when it's on one terminus or the other, and there's your tight grip, there's your clover leaf or your buckle. Do you now? Obviously, this is all this is all hypothetical because um, we can't actually see what's happening. Do you think the depth or the distance of the bullet? is is affecting that or is it just the the um i guess how can i describe this uh or is it the bullet as it enters the as it enters the the rifling the um the shock of that or do you think it's truly the distance well the um as some people have pointed out there and, and chris long has done this when the bullet collides with the lens and engraves into the lens that's going to put a little pulse on mm-hmm. this acoustic wave and it rides that it rides that barrel too right the the, the major factor is that acoustic wave like if you just smack the rifle barrel with a hammer right um it's going to start vibrating mm-hmm. um so the distance to the lens um I think is largely irrelevant, honestly. You know, I, I agree. Now, now. Yeah, and I want to clarify. I'm, I'm not talking about shooting 
teeny tiny groups of a thousand yards. I want to I want to shoot well enough to meet my needs. I don't need my I don't need to to get out the buffing rouge and polish my snap-on wrench set to look really beautiful so I can work on something. <laughs> you know, right. I want my tool my tool to meet my needs, but I get the idea. You want mm-hmm. it to be as good as possible. You want it to be as good as possible, but for sure. We, we don't want to strain on gnats and swallow camels as we're taught. You know, uh, we can get too wrapped around the axle of some things, you know, chasing, you know, you're going to, what is your window of randomness? Let's say you're the best bench rest or F class shooter, you know, on the, on the face of the earth and you've got the best equipment and the best load you still have a window of randomness there that mm-hmm. you you have to operate inside that window. And, you know, if you say, well, look at this, I did this and my group size shrank by 0.02 inches. It did that one time. Right. It did it once, you know, and you, you try it again and well, it got, it got bigger this time. What happened? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're in that window, but right. uh, you know, we, we want to be able to, and, and, let me segue slightly. Some people enjoy that chase. You know, as uh, as they say, it's not the kill, it's the thrill of the chase. And I honestly believe that some people fire their rifles only as a means to an end. Because sure. what they're really they're really after those empty brass cases so they can go back to what they truly love, tinkering yeah. with loads. <laughs> and that's that's great, man, because we because and I've said this before, we benefit from that. I used to be we that. Do. I used to yeah. be that tinkerer and I used to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to, I thought that for a long time, I thought that, that a load wouldn't shoot well unless I deburred the flash hole. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. I, I, I haven't deburred a flash hole in over a decade, man, because <laughs> that's yeah, just ridiculous. Right. So, um, that's, it, it's, uh, it's all like our personal quests for, for whatever satisfies the, the, the depths of our psyche, you know, in that, in that moment, but, um, and what lets you sleep, what, what lets you sleep at night. But yeah, I mean, you have to have the threshold of saying, okay, like how far am I going to go here, man? Like how far, how deep down the rabbit hole am I going to go? Right. Um, and so <laughs> you're right the, to, when's it stop? You're right. To, exactly. Uh, it, you got to reach that point and say, okay, it stops. You got to stop here. But you, you're very correct to point out that that we all shooters benefit from all of the trials and the tribulations that someone like Cortina goes through mm-hmm. to to bring you that information. And you take it and look at it and say, well, you know, you know, I can do this, and I, you know, I, I will try that and and see how it works. But um, I, I you know, we have to decide what our what level of accuracy exceeds our needs? Mm-hmm. I mean, it can say meets our needs, yeah, but I would like to have a level that somewhat exceeds my needs. That builds me a little bit more confidence in the load. But and then shoot, you know, get out and shoot, shoot in open environments where you don't have wind flags, where you have to rely on the, the, the nature to tell you what's going on downrange, mm-hmm. and under, of course, understand how the wind can can really do some weird stuff in certain places i mean where we shoot we're in appalachian mountains we're shooting up against the side of a mountain and, uh, across a valley and um it's just bizarre what you see happen sometimes and uh to the bullet and vertical changes happen 
uh, a bunch of leaves are going straight up in the air because the wind hit the side of that mountain and did that. Uh, I kind of get the idea it's probably going to push my bullet up too a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things, uh, there's an, uh, if you're familiar, um, on Frank Galley's podcast from sniper side, he had, um, he had, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's early <clears throat> Brian Morgan from hat Creek. Yeah. Uh, and Brian was talking about that and how now, it, although those, those conditions, they do exist and you know, you have to really have some, some, not, I won't say extreme, but you have to have some fairly significant, um, air movement to make that happen. And I think that um, the way, you know, the way that he was describing it with the vertical velocity and how to figure that out and and do your best to account for it. And that's exactly what he says. You got to do your best to account for it because um, understanding the environment that that phenomenon might occur in based upon what the terrain looks like. Um, and we see that here shooting in the mountains all the time. Oh, yeah. um, it's a big, it's a big thing. Um I I shot at a mountain buck a couple of years ago in some really windy conditions and it was a it was a 600 yard shot and um I just didn't see I just didn't see the wind that was actually happening I was up in a here in the North Cascades it's really rocky and very cliffy um a lot of big granite uh big granite cliffs and giant basins and bowls where these mule deer bucks like to hang out in the in the in the summer months where it's nice and cool and there's no bugs um but you have to deal with the conditions uh where they're at and in this particular situation there's no way that i could have gotten any closer to that animal and you know, i thought that i was well within my capabilities and um i've made shots like that in the past and in this particular situation the wind i just didn't see it and um i ended up killing that deer but it and i didn't wound it um but i did airball it a couple times because there was some really wild stuff going on downrange and i didn't realize that until um after i got the deer killed and i was i because it you know it takes you a long time to get from where you shoot to where you got to recover the animal yeah. and by the time i got there and the winds were what they were the day prior it was like oh these this is doing something totally different than what i thought it was when i when i made that shot the uh, yesterday morning or yesterday afternoon so it's it's a learning experience and um same thing with uh with pig river shooting at pig river is always an interesting uh for the wind patterns out there pig river it's always interesting it's always different than i think okay, we've shot north carolina there. uh pig river um in virginia um yeah oh yeah that's right uh, you guys how far not... away are you from from pig river dan uh, about two hours i think it is we're further further west mm -hmm. yeah uh, well, yeah. we're, we're, we've been there now. This is our, this is our third year. We usually go in November. Um, and, uh, we're going to book it for again, this coming November in 23. It would be great to have you come out and, and spend a couple of days with us and just, just hang out. And, and, um, I think it would be great to bring, uh, the, that knowledge and expertise to the class too. So if you have time in your schedule, when we do get out there, we'd love to have you come out. Yeah. Let me know. I'll Let's see if I can make it work. That'd be great too. I agree. Yes, uh, uh, different environments, different different behaviors on the wind uh, for sure. You know? I, I look at the, you know, I started to try to vision. Like I'm a very, I'm a very, I'm a visual learner. Like when I see something, 
Uh, I can generally replicate it. I can, like, if I watch somebody when I was learning how to weld, um, I just needed to watch somebody do it. And once I watched somebody do it, I said, okay, this is, this is the movement. This is the way that the, this is the way the puddle has to move. And, and, and that's how my mind conceptualizes things and I can replicate it fairly easy. And I look at the wind as, um, when your bullet gets shot into the wind, it's, uh, it's like a boat in the, it's like a boat in the wind. You know, when, when a big, when a big gust of wind comes, it moves the boat obviously more than, or like, uh, the best thing, like a canoe. I grew up, I grew up on lakes up in Northern, you know, uh, Northern Ontario and paddling across lakes and a big gust of wind comes and it's going to pull the bow of the canoe. You have to counter that. But as soon as the wind goes away, you don't have to counter it anymore. But the boat is that now the canoe's on a on a different trajectory. And so mm-hmm. as we as we visualize what's happening when we fire our bullet into the wind and realize that it's actually kicked off of its axis as a result of that wind, it's longitudinal axis. And then we can kind of visualize what the bullet's going to do in those conditions. Um and it's not, it's going to take some time for it to, to shift. And, um, one of the things that, uh, Jaden was talking about with regard to wind and his podcast, um, as he's a ballistician and right. uh, it's, you know, he was basically stating that, you know, if you're, if your shot is inside 600 yards, the chances of, you know, the wind is pretty much going to be what it's what it's at your position is pretty much what it's going to experience it's only going to be in the air for less than 0.4 seconds right you know at five six hundred between 0.4 and 0.6 seconds depending on what kind of what kind of bullet weight and and speed you're pushing it at but and that so he's starting to try to break it down into zones and and i once he said i was like okay that makes sense because yeah the bullet's only going to be in the sky for like half a second so yeah you know, that's what, and then we start getting into the deeper times of flight. That's where it's like, okay, well, from this to this is where I need to account for the wind, you know, from these, these different thresholds. And it's always, that's always obviously a, a deep learning experience, but it, it holds pretty true. I mean, if you're shooting at four or 500 yards, I mean, I hear shooters all the time. We have a club range here that shoots out to 600 yards and and uh 630 yards and people are like oh there's an updraft out there and i'm like dude the wind is like seven it's seven miles an hour man <laughs> there's not enough updraft out there to move you two, two or three tenths at 600 it yards is funny. And, you know, some, of the, some of the ideas people come up with as to why they miss <laughs> absolutely it, it's entertaining and it's like okay well that's fair i mean you might think that but let's really break it down you know um or like the fame, my barrel sped up or, or something to that effect. And it's like, well, is all that happening? Or did you develop a consistent charge weight that's not tossing shots um, because yeah. of different conditions? And that's really, exactly. I think that's a very, very valid point to bring up to people and say that like, you got to understand that what you're tweaking with your ammunition, it, you know, it, you're when you when you're not in that in that optimal charge weight and you are on the edges of those scatter nodes that you were referring to you're going to toss shots and it's not because of you it's because of right. your it's because of the ammunition well, the way that it's 
it's the wrong recipe. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you your, your, your thought on this. Cause, um, when I interviewed Eric talking about seeding depth, um, he was basically stating that, uh, that if you adjust your seating depth, you're also adjusting your pressure curve. And although I, I that's undeniable, um, that's undeniable. Like that's going to happen because we're we're altering the volume of the case, and pressure curve is all about um, volume, right? And so, mm. what are your thoughts on that? And can you explain? I understand. I think I understand what you're going to say, or I think I know what you're going to say, but I'd like to hear you explain it for the for the for the listeners. Um, I've explained this. If you imagine the shape of a bow tie, uh, there's a place where you're further back from the lens and you drop pressure and then you start moving toward the lens and, um, the, uh, well, let's start the other end. You're touching the lens and you're going to have mm -hmm. a higher pressure loaded against the lens. And that, that's high on one end of the bow tie. And when you come back, when you start backing off the lens, the pressure drops toward the center of that bota. And then you keep coming back further. Okay, now we're taking up room in the case. We're, we're dropping the total volume of the case by seating the bullet deeper. So you, you get a pressure increase there. That's my understanding of it. Mm -hmm. But um, the um, um, while you know, changing the seating depth alters pressure, sure you know uh it, it does but uh you know and i've heard people say well i i i, I, I it out a little further now 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 i'm getting flat primers mm. you know uh, mm -hmm. i've heard people say well you know i'm popping primers because i need to clean my barrel and now i'm not popping primers to me and it's just my opinion if if your load is going to pop primers because you didn't clean your barrel every 30 or 40 shots You've got way too much powder in that case. Yeah, you know you're on the threshold of just you know because you get out in the moist environment, you know, uh, and people, you know, it matches. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, oh yeah. Well, good. Day. Yeah, I'm blowing primers. What's going on? Well, it's 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 humid out here. You know, we had a little bit of rain, and and you get moisture into into the system there into the chamber, or maybe you know when something heats and then cools off, you get condensation. You know. Uh, that may restrict uh, the chamber and or the bore mm -hmm. um, just enough to put you over the edge. So I like to have plenty of headroom with whatever load I might be wanting to use so that these things don't happen. You know? So the way that I've, the way that I've, that I've, tr that I've explained it to folks is that if we did our, if we did our work correctly with finding the optimal charge weight, that's pressure resilient, the the seating depth changes and i mean i'm we're only talking you know a few thousandths of an inch here on seating depth right. changes um that is still going to can if you you know if that if you're really in that optimal charge weight area or node that people refer to it as the seating depth changes are going to be inside that noise there you I mean, go. yeah it's going to be inside that noise, which is then yeah. not going to pull. Now, if you're doing your seating depth changes and you're watching that shot group walk around on the target, you know, if you got, say, five different seating depths and you're seeing those point of impact shifts as you're shooting those seating depth charges, now we that might be an indication that you truly are not in the the powder, into the pressure node. Yeah. Well, how do you yeah. feel about that? I think you're right. I think, you know, if a seating depth change can uh, do that much to you, this is what the 
uh, you know, tangent to job bullet, not one of these, right. You know, not bullets a BLD. So, yeah. Um, then you should be good. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't come out of the, off of that node. And I think Berger has changed their bullets up quite a bit. I think they had a lot of people that just bugged the daylights out of them. Uh, I remember back maybe that first generation, 168 grain, seven millimeter VLDs. I mean, they were very, very sensitive to seating dope. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Berger got tired of answering emails and phone calls and <laughs> maybe tweaked that tweaked that thing a bit so that uh, it's a little little more tolerant. But, and I think uh, I think also at at, ex- at extended distances, those those ogive profiles are very difficult to keep consistent for just ballistic coefficients you know just the the shape form of the projectile itself is difficult yeah. to maintain yeah absolutely so um you know and i don't know why you know i've heard you know Berger would tell people uh, load it against the lens see what happens load mm-hmm. 10 back 20 back 30 back one guy went to 140 thousandths off the lens i think he got a factory remington seven mag and hey it's shooting great at that at that big of a jump but i i don't know why that that they that you can just go straight to hell in a handbasket with a five thousandth of an inch seating depth change i don't want to shoot a bullet like that but i'm still i'm curious as to what's happening and my theory is if that bullet engraves into the lens collides with the lens at a given pressure level it is fragile enough on that rocket nose cone that it gets it gets uh, deformed slightly. Upset. Yep. Yeah, and then it comes out with a bent nose very slightly. You know, and you have to find out how to ease it into the lens uh, without harming it. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I don't want that bullet. That's my opinion. <laughs> exactly. I'm the same way. You know, I'm I'm absolutely the same way. The the um, yeah, I don't want to have to deal with any of that stuff anymore. I don't want to tinker anymore. <laughs> did my tinkering yeah you know i want to i want to get a load that shoots um and it's uh the more you do it the more you you realize like hey like loading six creed more with with 4350 i'm probably going to be 40 i'm probably going to be right at 40.1 grains somewhere right in that window you know 39 you know 39.8 to 40.1 somewhere in there and it's going to shoot really well um the same thing with like uh you know i was doing some research on the bra and i had one of those i had a i had a couple barrels uh, chambered up for a bra that thing's stupid it's just you don't have to do anything put 30 grains of argot in it and seat whatever bullet you want at boat tail bearing surface junction on the shoulder of the case and if it doesn't shoot then you have a you have a bad chamber uh, or you got something wrong with your barrel Right. So, um, and, and the more we figure this out, it's just, you know, you, you see those patterns show up, like you found that 3% rule. Um, and once, and once I loaded to that, it it was like, that's what I use. I use your optimal charge weight test. And, and that's how I find every single load that I've, that I've shot in the past 15 years. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, on that 3% thing, I don't claim to know why. All I'm telling you is that's what that's the pattern that yeah. I see. <laughs> so somebody, somebody's gonna, you know, say, well, why don't you get in to say why? Why is that happening? There's a few ideas that are kicking around, but they're they're not solid enough to even 
repeat them. Um, but you know, if anybody has um, my a my good idea, my my thought would be, and obviously I'm not a scientist. <clears throat> um, my thought would be that it has a lot to do with um, with uh, with the speed of sound and steel. I think it has a lot to do with that. Yeah, I um, think that's where we need to start. Yeah, yeah. I think it has a lot to do with that vibrational wave pattern. My my wife, um, my wife loves sound and instruments and music. And uh, my son's a my son's a musician as well. And she's got tuning forks all over the house. Ah, there you go. Yeah, um, she's got tuning forks all over the house, right? And um, I had uh, Ted Courageous out here to uh, do a couple of interviews with me, American Rifle Company. I really enjoy talking with Ted. He's super, super smart, and he's uh, extremely talented in this in this world. And um, he laid it out really simple. We were talking about um, what the ideal barrel contour, barrel profile would be, and he's like, really, like from a from an engineering standpoint, we want more weight at the end of the barrel <clears throat> than we do at the at the breech end. Obviously, that's not how we build barrels now, but he said, the heavier the weight that I have at the end of the barrel, the more uh, easy that barrel is going to be to tune. And just like you're talking about the barrel, the the vibrational movement of that barrel. And I know that um, there was a video that was posted, uh, Applied Ballistics posted a video, a slow motion video of a projectile, a 338 projectile exiting the muzzle. And there's, you know... Well, as we can see here through this high-speed video that the the barrel is not whipping. Well, no, we're not going to see that in a high... This is a microscopic... Movement. That's right, yeah. It's a vibrational yeah. tone. And, and like you can take a line of tuning forks and each of them will vibrate at a different resonance with the same force of impact. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening with your barrel. Sure. And... Uh, Ted yeah. just took a barrel and he tied a clove hitch on on the, on a, on the barrel about six inches from the breech and smacked it with a hammer and it started to sing. Right. Well, he took that that clove hitch and moved it farther down the barrel to more to mid mid barrel length and smacked it with a hammer again and it started to sing in a different tone. And it's like that's like if you can't see that that's what's happening, you know, and that's what we're doing with charge weights. We're we're a, we're changing the the vibrational resonance of the barrel by how hard we smack it with the charge. And then that's how barrel tuners tune up groups. Uh, that's you know, right. They do it's, work. I mean, I, I know that some some stuff come out recently. No, they don't work. They don't do any good. And we know what I'm referring to there, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Who wrote that? Um, I don't know why he wrote that. It, it's um, I have got they I've do. got an idea of why, but you know it's one of those things where it's like, <laughs> yeah, it has to do with it has to do with with um, with a lot of other things that are operating in the peripheral, um, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is because you know get the politics out of this so we can all learn from each other. But right, you know, exactly, and I don't mean governmental politics. I just mean yep, yeah, understood. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, they they work, but you, you know you can again you can tune that release to the right point on that terminus of that barrel mm -hmm. with the seating depth changes. Yep, agreed. You can do it. Yeah. Well, Dan, this is a lot of fun, music. man. This is yeah, a lot of fun. I, this is a great conversation, man. So, what were you going to say about music? Um, you were talking about music, and I just thought I'd 
I'll let you tell yeah. me what you listen to. What do you love? Oh, I I listen to all kinds of music. Um, uh, probably one of my favorite bands, my favorite all time bands is uh is the Black Keys. Um, yeah, I I really really love the Black Keys. They they put out some really cool music. Like and it's it. a lonely boy. Yeah, yeah, that's the 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 their newest album. We just uh, I took my boy to see him. Uh, so that was his first rock concert. We took him. They were playing in Seattle. Uh, I've seen him a couple times, and um, my wife is really into live music. She loves chasing music. She's chasing live music all over the world. Um, wow! And awesome. uh, yeah, so w- right after we met, she was she was on her way. Uh, she was on her way the next month to Spain to go see a bunch of to a bunch of shows <laughs> in Spain. So uh, nice. Yeah, he plays. Um, my my boy started playing the guitar about three years ago, and it just he he has it he he's got it in his awesome. in his in his brain and he just picked it up and went went crazy and he's got that musical talent cuz he can play all kinds of instruments now uh, he can That's play the great. piano he can play the drums he can play um all guitar obviously the guitar and he can play all kinds of stuff so and yeah that's good you you yeah, play I, the guitar I, obviously and do you play anything else the bass uh, bass okay. guitars that's it you know uh this six string behind me i just use that to write with but we we have a band we get together here and there but nothing major but um that's awesome yeah, heavy metal mostly yeah heavy metal right on right on he, but I'm, he, 50, uh, I'm 59 years old but rob Halford, the priest is 71 and he's still singing so I can, there you go right I there you, go. Up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you look at the oz man right um, yeah, I'm 75. Uh, propping him up with <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, actually, my wife and I saw um, my wife and I saw Tom Petty just a couple of weeks oh. before he passed away. It was one of his last wow. shows here in Seattle. Yeah, I'm sure you're glad to be able to see him for sure. A gen- absolute genius he was. Yeah, indeed. Um, I got my boy into Clutch too. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he was listening. Cool. He came in the shop one day. I was I had some Clutch playing, and she was like, "Dad, who's this?" I was like, clutch, dude. And uh, he started downloading the songs and I hear him play, trying to trying to play in his room. It's it's awesome. I like their version of Fortunate Son. Yeah, it's a good cool. one. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. We can't we listen to the same music then. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I always ask people that, you know, and I mean your podcast listeners, you you know, on the technical end of things, they don't know as much about you as maybe they would like to. For sure. Absolutely. And that, that's a, you know, that's, that's really important because, you know, we're all just, we're all just folks living our lives and, you know, we have, we have our likes and dislikes and I, I love music and I could listen to all different kinds of music. Really. I don't, um, it all depends on the mood that I'm in at the time. Um, I mean, yes. I could listen to classical, I could listen to classical music if I'm trying to concentrate and focus, um, uh, and, and kind of get into my own zone. Uh, mm-hmm. Or you know, it just depends on what mood I'm in. Oh yeah, uh, same here. Jazz, blues, all of it. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, my boy started uh, listening to. Uh, he's learning how to play the drums, and so he's on a on a jazz on a jazz drum kick right now. And so he's listening to all Please. that stuff. And if uh, he can play jazz drums, he's there. <laughs> he's learning. Jazz he's drum. learning. Yeah. We we went to a music store, <clears throat> and um, he was picking up some sticks. And, uh, there was a drum set there and there wasn't anybody in the music store. And, and I had never seen him play on a drum set. And I knew he was learning percussion at, at, in band mm-hmm. at school. And then he got on that drum set and just started playing. 
And I had never, I didn't realize that he was capable of that at that point in time. And the, one of the owners of the store, I could see him kind of poke his head out from the door in a, in one of the back. Well, who's doors. doing that? Yeah. Who's doing that? <laughs> who's playing that? And he just kind of walked out and sat at the counter and, you know, folded his arms and, and was watching him. And, and, and he was like, is that your kid? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I think he was trying to sell me a drum set. I'm sure. But, but, but still it was just like, man, I didn't, I didn't think that he could play like that. He was just wailing. It was awesome. Good. So yeah, That's I'm great. Really proud of him, but I'm uh, sure you are. Yeah. Well, Dan, this was a great conversation, man. Thank you for your time. Um, we're going to get this episode up, uh, most Ricky tick. And, um, I'd love to have you on again and uh, to continue to, to, to have these conversations just because we are all learning from, from this stuff. And, and that's all we can do is just listen and learn. Yeah, so thank absolutely. you for your time. Thank you for your time and for the invitation. God bless you. Yeah, you too, Dan. Take care of yourself.